Lord, we know uh, how futile <clears throat> things are, how passing things are. But we also know uh, that your word stands strong and it is eternal. And so as we come to uh, your words, we thank you that you speak to us through it. And so we ask you to do a great and powerful work. What we don't understand and know about you, teach us more of it just now, Lord God. And what we are not, we pray that you would uh, make us, change us, uh, that we might be more like Christ through an encounter with you, through hearing uh, your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, What you good people know, having listened to all number of preachers uh, throughout your time and throughout the years, what you know is that when a person sits down to write a sermon, a minister sits down to do it, that there are clearly a whole host of different ways that uh, a preacher can handle a text. You, you know this, you know it well. When a, someone sits down, they're wrestling with Scripture and they've got one eye on proclaiming that text. There's a whole host of different approaches that a person uh, can take. You know this, don't you? You know that well. So a, a minister can be uh, mechanically methodical. Can't, can't they? they can, verse 1 says this, verse 2 says this, verse 3 says this, mechanically yeah, methodical. But a preacher can do other things. A preacher can focus in on legitimately one verse in a text, or can base things and center things around the events in the text, or a literary device that the author might use. There's all manner of different approaches that legitimately can be taken. Well, this morning, as we come to, what is it? It's the birth of John the Baptist which I think is perhaps quite an overlooked little section of Scripture, the birth of John the Baptist. Let me tell you what we're going to do this morning, you and I. Okay, so yes, we're going to be mechanically methodical. So we are going to work through this from the top, line by line, verse by verse, from the top to the tail. Yeah, we'll do that. What I would love you to do is to pay very close attention to the figures that we encounter along the way. Okay, the people that we encounter along the way. We have actually talked about this before, haven't we? The idea of people watching. That's kind of what we're going to do today. We're going to work from the top to the tail, but we're going to pay close attention to the people, the individual, the figures that we meet along the way. And we'll structure things around those figures. Let me actually tell you who we're going to meet today. So first of all, we're going to think about this group that gathers at John the Baptist's birth. So we're going to look at them. Then we'll move on. We'll look at Elizabeth. And we'll see what we can learn from Elizabeth. Then we'll look on to Zechariah. Before finally, we're going to consider what, what effect these events that we're going to read of, what, what effect do they have on the wider population? So you got it? So it's a, a group that gathers at the birth then Elizabeth, then Zechariah, and then the wider population. And you need to hear this. In each instance, yes, we're looking at these people, but that is not the ultimate goal. In each instance along the way, we are looking at these people in order to learn about the Lord. So, for the next few moments in St. Peter's, what we're going to do? We people watch, but we're going to do that in order to see God at work. So, 
Have you got a copy of Scripture there? If not, and if you've got a phone or copy of Scripture, go for it. What we'll try and do is project the verses as we work through them methodically, sequentially. Uh, and the first, what was the first? The first figures. It was the group that gather at the birth. And we've projected verses 57 and 58. Okay, so let's make a start. Have you heard the name Enia Luko? I wonder if that name, Enia Luko, it means anything to you. Uh, Enia Luko is a, a football commentator who has been, in my opinion, unfairly ridiculed uh, over the past week. And she was ridiculed for a mathematical mistake that she made live on air. That's the stuff of nightmares, isn't it? You're making a, a mathematical mistake live on air. So she said this and has been unfairly ridiculed for it. So, ready? She's talking about the World Cup, obviously. She's talking about a player's form. Oh, are you ready for the mathematical error? She says, he's done well. He scored 19 goals in 40 games. And you do the maths. That's a goal per game. Oh, 19 goals in 40 games. That's a goal per game, which obviously is incorrect. I felt genuinely incredibly sorry uh, for, for Miss Aluko. Imagine the pressure of being on live TV as well. But anyway, regardless, even if we are really bad at math, even if math is not our strong suit, I think you and I can do the math, the sums in Luke chapter 1, and then not be really surprised about what we're dealing with. Think about the background. Okay, let's do the math. So this woman, Elizabeth, that we're thinking about, right? Elizabeth finds herself pregnant, yes? And then in the sixth month of pregnancy, the door goes and Mary comes to visit. And then in the last verse of the previous section, you notice what we're told? We're told that she, what is it, three months later, Mary travels home. So we can easily do the math, right, can't we? Six months of pregnancy plus three months of pregnancy. Not a surprise to find what we do here. And what is that? Elizabeth gives birth to whom? To an incredibly important, symbolic individual, the forerunner uh, to Jesus Christ. So she gives birth here at this moment to John the Baptist. Now, I think what we could do is, is focus on the, the idea of fulfillment. It's quite subtle, but we could focus on the idea of fulfillment. Because do you remember what Gabriel, the angel, said to Zechariah in verse 14? Gabriel had not just said to Zechariah, you're going to have a son. He'd actually said, you're going to have a son. And when that happens, this son is going to bring with him great joy. And do you not see that's almost immediately fulfilled here in the text above me? Do you, do you notice it? Look at this. Elizabeth's neighbors and her relatives. You know, John's born. And look at them. They're, they're immediately rejoicing. John comes in the world. And it, there's joy. So there's, there's fulfillment. We could focus on that. What I would prefer you to do, genuinely, is to zero in on, in this text here, the, the prompt for joy or the basis for the joy. Can, can you see it in verse 
15. Why exactly are they rejoicing? What does it, can I read it? So Elizabeth's neighbors, relatives, what did they hear that brought joy? Look at it. The Lord had shown great mercy to Elizabeth. And it's that, the Lord showing mercy to Elizabeth, that brings the joy, isn't it? Like, does everybody follow the idea here? This is not just, this is not just happiness because uh, another child has gone into the world, you know? Like, this scene in the hill country of Judea is not the sort of scene that we would have in Scotland in a village, a, you know, a few decades ago <coughs> to, you know, old biddies, <coughs> you know, meet in the village in Scotland. Oh, did you hear that little Annie from number 14? She's had her baby. Oh, tremendous. And there's that. it's not that sort of idea in any You can see what this is. It's not just joy in a child being born. This is joy at what God has done. This is joy in God's action. And think about what the action is. It's joy that God has shown undeserved favor to Elizabeth. Now think of it. An elderly woman. Not just finding out she's pregnant. But God in such kindness and shooting that she's healthy and she's safe and she's in this vulnerable time. She's gone to term and this elderly woman, she's had a baby. And what else is it? It's this joy, goodness from God that a previously barren woman has now had this, this child. You can see it, can't you? This is delighting in God, his goodness. This is delighting in the mercy of God. As we think, okay, as we think about application for St. Peter's, I think there is. In this group in the room with Elizabeth rejoicing, I think there is application generally for our congregation, and then a little bit more specific too. What's the general lesson that we get from this group, do you think? I'll read you something. I quite like it. It's from a very old commentator, like 18th century or 19th century, and he's writing about this group. Now listen to what he says about it. He says this. He says, oh, he doesn't say that. I said that. But he says, oh, He says, how much more happiness there would be in this evil world if conduct like that of Elizabeth's neighbors and relations was much more common. How much more happiness there would be. Now, you can see what he's saying, can't you? He's writing to the church. He's saying that these people are an example, especially for the people of God in the church. Do you agree? Do you not agree with that? Like, what a difference it would make if we in here at St. Peter's were much more, I think, active in expressing delight with those in the congregation that have cause for joy. Not doing what we are so good at doing, as Scots especially, and hearing of great news that people have, great things that are happening in the congregation, and how do we respond? We go away, think to ourselves, that's nice for them. But no, acting on it. As Christians, doing what these people do and actually going to those people have cause for joy and sharing in that and supporting them in that and, you know, just thanking God alongside them. So gratitude with actively obeying the command that Jesus has given us. We are to mourn with those who mourn, but what else are we to do? We're not to rejoice for, rejoice with those who rejoice. There's a general lesson here. 
Can we not, though, be a little bit more specific? Because should we not, like these people, should we not rejoice with those who have experienced a a special measure of God's mercy? Do you see the idea? Not just when there's nice things that happen to people, but when somebody's experienced a remarkable outpouring of grace. Should we not rejoice especially with them? And when you think about that, do you see what God's done for you? Do you see that this morning at St. Peter's, God has presented you with the most perfect opportunity to do exactly this? Think about the three people who have just come up to take their vows of baptism. Don't you, don't you see? What are they doing? These three people are coming up here and they are declaring God is a God of mercy. God is a God of steadfast covenant love and goodness and God is a God of salvation. Do you see the parallel with Elizabeth? They are saying, God has shown me mercy and it's resulted in new life. So should we not respond like the neighbors and the relatives? Can we not, by going to these people after the service today, speaking to them, opening up our lives to them, welcoming them to St. Peter's, can we not respond like this? Can we not rejoice alongside those recipients of mercy, recipients of grace? So we see this group that gathers at the birth. Second of all, I think we note as we look on and people watch, we note secondly, Elizabeth. So if we can put up verses 59 to 61. Newborn babies bring absolute chaos with them. Um, Some of you will remember that from uh, recent uh, memory. Others might have to uh, think back further. But the first week of having a newborn baby in the house is like living through a ferocious tornado or something. But a newborn baby brings chaos into the world. Well, actually, though we're not told very much about John the Baptist's first week of life, we're not. Once we get to the eighth day of John's life, what we find are a couple of events happen. Now, did you notice the two things that happen on the eighth day? What happens? First of all, there is circumcision. John is circumcised, isn't he? Eighth eighth day. We know what that is, don't we? We know what it is. We know that this was the older sign of the covenant, don't we? Do we know this as a congregation? Where today, what do we do? We baptize our infants as covenant sign. We baptize reflecting the new spiritual realities that has been brought with Christ. We baptize what happens back in the day. They didn't do that. They circumcised. They circumcised their young ones. That's the first thing that happens on the eighth day. What is the second thing that happens on the eighth day? Do you notice? They also name the baby. Now, do you you agree with me? That's when things get really take off and they become a little bit controversial in the text. Do you notice that? The dynamics are fascinating when they get to naming uh, the child. I think what's helpful for us to know is that in the ancient world, in the first few days of a baby's life, that was really honestly like a communal event. The first few days for a, for, a, for a new life. It was like a, a community event. I don't know what you would think about this idea, but what would happen 
when a baby was being born uh, at this point, first century world, is that there would be the gathering of lots of musicians and singers and uh, dancing and rejoicing. Mums, how would you have appreciated that in uh, the maternity room? You know, maybe the St. Pete's band in the corner. <laughs> would you have wanted that? We're going to have some tambourines and singing. Maybe not. I don't know. But it was a communal event, and this continued a little bit. So this continued into uh, the eighth day. So we need to appreciate at this point that, that there was usually at least ten. So we're well into, well into double figures beyond that as well, of people who would gather for the circumcision. Now, if you look at it in, in verse 59, this crowd that gathers, they are clearly expecting to name the baby and to name the baby Zechariah. So I guess my question for you rhetorically would be the question, why? Why do we think they're so determined to do that, to name Zechariah? Do we think it was because, do you think it was because Zechariah was such a special guy? Like, are we, are we thinking they, they, they're going to, because he had served so well as a priest and then look, he was this old, godly, do we think that's the reason? That's not the reason. The reason is that this is how things were done. Do you appreciate that? Like at this point in time, in this part of the world, more often than not, a little baby boy was born. What's going to happen? He's going to be named after his grandfather or he's going to be named after his dad. This, this is how things were done in this part of the world. But what do you hear? At that moment, his mother pipes up and, and she says, not happening. She says, we know why this is. His name is not to be Zechariah. Why, why, why? Because the angel Gabriel named him John. Now, I've got something I want you to do. I want you to take a step back. I want you to look at Elizabeth here. What are you seeing in Elizabeth? Is it not this? As she goes against this group's wishes, are we not seeing from her, from this mother... A determination to obey God over and against cultural expectations. I want you to think about it and hear it. So we see Elizabeth say no to that crowd in relation to her boy, into relation to her son. Is it not a desire to follow God, to listen to God, to obey God, even in the face of pressure from society around and cultural expectation. And, and I hope, sincerely, you see in the text that there really was pressure from the culture and the society around. Did you notice it? Like Elizabeth said, no, uh, no, no, he's going to be called John. And what does the crowd do? Does the crowd say, oh, well, of course, you're the mother. You, you get to choose, you know. That's not what the crowd say. Do you notice? They come back to her. You know, you don't have any relations that go by that name. You can't call him John. This is simply not how we do things around here. This is not right, Elizabeth. Do you see? She sticks to her guns. Do you see that? What we see is a pursuit of obedience to God's word, even in the face of cultural expectations and pressure. 
Now, where in the first point, it was the group earlier on, I think, that provided an example for us. I think here, surely Elizabeth does the same. And I want to say that in particular to you, if you're a Christian parent in this room. I think this is important for us, difficult for us. But if you're a Christian parent, I want to ask, how are you just now navigating all these cultural pressures that Scottish society is putting on you in relation to your kids? How are we doing? How are we negotiating these cultural pressures, these expectations? Are we pursuing obedience to God's word regardless of the expectation, regardless of the pressure? Now, you, Christian parent in here, you, you have to fill in the blanks. I mean, it could be in your circumstance. It depends what age the children are. I mean, it could be cultural expectations about what your children wear. It could be cultural expectations about where your children go. It could be expectations, honestly, about how your children speak and speak to you as parents. It could be cultural expectations about what your children do on a Sunday. But as you turn to Scripture today, what do you see in Elizabeth? Do you know what I was going to say? I was going to say, you see a mum... But you don't really, because look at her alongside Zechariah. Don't we see the same? We see parents. We see a united front, don't we? And we see them determined to obey God's word and not to cave to cultural expectations of the day. Surely an example for us to follow. Third. So we see this group that gathered. Then we look at Elizabeth. Third. We look at Zechariah. Let's put up verses 62 to 64. <coughs> it's been actually quite a while, hasn't it? Since we uh, turned to look at Zechariah, there is so much going on in Luke uh, chapter 1. But maybe as you turn back just now to look at Zechariah and to think about Zechariah, maybe you think it's just a little bit dry, a little bit predictable. D- do you see what I mean at least? What had happened before the, the angel had appeared to him, promised the son. How, how had Zechariah responded? I think we can all remember. Zechariah responded in disbelief, unbelief. And then uh, the angel Gabriel had sentenced him, if you like, to silence, right? For, for, you're going to be mute for nine months. And so today, when we come back to Zechariah, and those nine months are passed, and he regains his voice, maybe we're sort of thinking, this is, well, that's kind of predictable. I mean, we kind of thought that was going to happen, and it's turned out, as promised, okay, bit dull, bit predictable. I don't think so. I think there's more going on here. I want you to notice or think about the timing for a second. So in verse 20, this is the reason that I had that, that the earlier reading. But in verse 20, it was very interesting what the angel says. The angel says to Zechariah, you are going to be mute until this birth happens. So you're going to be mute for nine months until John is born. And then when John is born, you're going to, you know, your speech will return. Right? We remember that, don't we? Don't we? So when might we have expected Zechariah to get his voice back? Eight days earlier don't you think? You know, when all the singers and dancers and Crawford and, and the, the band are playing, 
As John comes in, the world, might we not have expected at that point? For, yes, Zechariah's tongue is loosed and, and he's able to speak. And it doesn't happen then. And we have to wait. Imagine that, wait for Zechariah too. Day after day after day after day, eight days until the circumcision. Well, why is that? Well, where exactly did we leave things in this room? Can, can you pan the scene? Do you remember? There's this group gathered. What do the crowd want to do? They want to name the child. What else happens there? And Elizabeth says, no, and the crowd are not happy. Are they? And the crowd, what? You want to name him John? We want a second opinion here. And what do the crowd do? They go to the dad. And they go to him and they ask him, well, what, what, what really is this child going to be named? And he's mute. And he has to write the answer. And I think what he writes on that tablet is the key to everything. Would you look at it with me? Look at verse 63. What does he write in the tablet? Now, look at it. What is the tense? Do you remember what Elizabeth said? Do you remember how it's future? His name shall be called John. You know, when, when me and his dad name, we will call him. But what does... That was future tense. What does Zechariah write? Do you notice, friend... Do you notice it's a past tense? He says, his name is John. It's already, and it's at that second that his tongue is loosed and he's able to speak, his name is John. Do you, can, can you see the significance of this tense, this change? Before Zechariah didn't believe God. He didn't believe that God was going to work. Now what's happened? Now there's been a change. His name is John. Zechariah recognized God has already named this boy. God is going to work through him. I wonder if you see what's happened. God has used those nine months. God has used a time of pain and suffering in Zechariah's life and used it to bring out greater faith and to bring Zechariah nearer to his God. And I hope this morning in St. Peter's, you do see, do you, that those would have been nine, nine difficult months for Zechariah. Imagine what it'd be like. Nine months of silence, right? So nine months where you are alone with your thoughts but think about it, nine months where you are face to face with the fact that you failed your God. Nine months where you have realized, no, I have doubted him and I've disbelieved him. And you're wrestling for nine months with your own sinful heart. You see how difficult it would be? So isn't it beautiful to see what happens? You know, do you think that oh, his voice is restored and that's it? After this period, do you think that's all that happens? Look at the first Note the intimacy. His voice returns, and what does he do? He speaks, blessing God. First thing that he wants to do. God uses nine months of pain, a season of suffering in this man's life, to richen, deepen his faith, his love for his God. And I made a horrible mistake in sermon preparation. This is what I was going to say to you. Listen. If you're a Christian, I was going to say, this is how sometimes God works with us. I was going to say that sometimes in our lives, 
God uses suffering to bring his people closer to him. And I hope you can see that that was a terrible mistake for a minister to make. Because God always does this. Always does it. Do you understand that? Such is his mercy, such is his grace. God always uses times and seasons of suffering and pain in his people's life to bring them closer to him. To bring them closer to him in relationship. And to bring them closer to him in likeness. He always does it. And so what should we do? This should act as a prompt for us when times of trouble and difficulty come to go first to Jesus. We go straight to him. I need to ask you, are you there? Some in the congregation are. A time of crisis. A real season of difficulty. Your own nine months of silence to experience. Are you there? What should you do? You lay it all before God. You take it all, all the confusion you have, all the worry that you've got about what lies ahead, all of the the difficulty, you lay it to God, you speak to God about it, and you can praise him. That God is a God who always uses times of suffering to make you more like his son. Last, we've looked at the group, we've looked at Elizabeth, we've looked at Zechariah. Lastly, we look at the wider population. Let's put up uh, verses 55, 56. I don't have green fingers at all. I don't have green fingers. Um, Indeed, I I can remember uh, as a child being completely and entirely bemused by the idea of gardening uh, as a hobby, as a child, I could not... I can get it now a little bit. Uh, but as a child, I just... Uh, that was just... That didn't make any sense to me. I would look out the window and see my parents slaving away in the garden. And I would be scratching my head. I was just looking at them. And, you know, the first thing that we would do is, like, de-stone... There's probably a technical term for this, but de-stone the soil... So there's my dad with a spade trying to get these massive boulders out of the soil, sweating, and then to get the sieve, and they try to get the, the, the smaller pebbles away, and they're sweating. And then they would start raking the soil, and they try to get it lovely and get all the little bits of mess away, and looking at them. And then they would start making like furrows and, and that sort of thing. And then they would come in. And I would ask them about it. And I just could not understand what they would say because they would say, this was them preparing to garden. This was them preparing the ground. They hadn't even got to the good stuff. And I, as a child, I just could not understand the effort that went into preparation. As we end here, that's what you see from your God here, right now. Now, this is what we do to end, okay? I want you with me, just in a word, believe me when I say that, just very briefly, I want you to notice the effects, John's birth, the effects that has on the wider population. Would you look at the text with me? Three things. One, how does the wider population react? Number one, verse 65, there's fear. Do you see that there's fear? Look at that. Fear comes on the people. Why why do you think they're scared? Why, Why do you think there's fear? 
Do you think maybe it's because of Elizabeth's age that, you know, freaked out by this noise of an elderly woman having a child? Do you think it's because Zechariah's voice is restored? Look at the end of the section of Scripture. Given the answer, it's because the Lord was with this child. Everybody hear it. Why are they, why are they, put, why are they on edge? Why are they unnerved by this? Because God was working. The presence of God was there. The power of God was there. That's what's unnerved them. That's number one. Two, how else do they respond? Do you notice that there is discussion? Uh, your interim moderator, latterly, when you were vacant as a church, was a man called David Meredith. May, many of you have seen him on a screen, probably, or met him. Um, he's got a lot of catchphrases, does Mr. Meredith. One uh, of his most commonly used is the idea of gossiping the gospel. Okay, you've heard that phrase. Mr. Meredith loves that phrase. I like that phrase, gossiping the gospel. Isn't that almost what you've got here? Do you notice that? Look at verse 65. We are said, we're told that all of these things, God working, all of these things were talked about. Now, the point is where in the text is, is it talked about? Do you notice? All over the hill country. So God is working and you've got people chatting, gossiping, speaking about God working over this big area, all over the whole hill country of Judea. Last one. So there's fear, there's discussion. Isn't there also, don't you notice, contemplation? There's that familiar phrase in verse 66. I think it's one that we usually associate with Mary, the mother of the Lord. Do you notice the phrase? What is it? The whole population, they lay these things up in their hearts. Is everyone getting the picture? What they do laying it up in their hearts? They're, they're wondering about this. They're not just talking and gossiping their neighbor. They're playing this stuff over in their minds, chewing it over, thinking, well, what's going on here? And they're wondering, and, and what is God going to do here? And as we end, I want you just to put all of those pieces of the jigsaw together. Do you see what God is doing? Let me tell you what God is doing. God is laying the groundwork. Through the work, through the birth of John the Baptist, God is doing what my mum and my dad were doing in that garden. And here, through the birth of John the Baptist, God is preparing the soil for what? For John? Yeah, maybe. For John's ministry? Much more. He's preparing the soil, preparing them for who is to come next. I hope you see that, do you? God here, through this birth, through these great events we've looked at today, he has stirred things up, hasn't he? God has worked so that this population is disturbed. This population becomes expectant. Did you notice the term? Do you notice the phrase? God has worked in the advance of Jesus coming in the incarnation so that this population have on their lips the question, what sort of child will this be? Do you see it? God has made ready a people for the coming into the world of the Savior Jesus Christ. And so I do close with this. If you're not yet a Christian, if you're not yet born again by the Holy Spirit of God, I need to ask you, see this here, is that what God is doing in your life just now? Is it? Could it be that God is readying you just now 
to see Jesus. Now, you think about it for yourself. Think about what has been happening in your life, in your connection with this church and other Christians. Are you finding yourself more open to spiritual things than you once were? As people invite you, friends invite you, as you hear about Jesus, you're more interested than you used to be in Christian things. Is God doing this? Is he preparing you to see Jesus? If so, I urge you, do not delay. What John is going to say to this disturbed people later on is true. Of Jesus Christ, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is true. Today we have people watched. What you need to do is look to Jesus. Friend, do that today. See Jesus, but with the eyes of faith. Let's pray.